My attempt is a preface to what we will talk about in the days ahead. And so this morning as we look at Romans 12, 1 and 2, just two short verses, but my oh my, what is in these verses and what I have titled, Worship That Will Change Your Life. You know, within the church today, there is this thing called worship wars. And worship wars exist over what songs are being sung. You can only sing songs out of a particular hymnal. And you can't have a guitar, and you surely can't have any drums, and you have to have a choir, and you can't have this, and you must have that. And so it's far too common in our culture today for churches to fight over what songs will be sung and the genre of of music they will come from and how they will be presented. And the whole purpose and the mission of the church is paralyzed by this battle over what really isn't to be that big of a deal. Now, worship is very preferential. The songs you like, I may not like. The style of music I like, you may not care for. So we try to find a middle ground, and we try to find the truth in what is being sung as it magnifies the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. But as we look at this idea of worship that will change your life, as we look at these two short verses of Scripture, it's always difficult when you come to the word therefore to begin a passage of Scripture Therefore is a transition. And you have to ask yourself the question, what is it therefore? What is it that the writer is alluding to as he says, therefore? And most particularly in the book of Romans, Paul is talking about all that he has discussed and laid out in Romans chapter 11. And don't do this this morning, but maybe later today. If you read through chapter 11, Paul goes to great length to talk about the sovereign call of God on the nation of Israel to be His people, a unique people for His own possession, a royal priesthood who would dwell with Him forever. In our lives and in the lives of Gentiles, it is the sovereign call of God's election for these to be saved. And so as Paul is going through and talking about the fact that Israel as a nation is not going to be cast away, God's sovereign choosing of them is still intact, and he's writing these words to encourage Jewish Christians about their state. But Paul makes this transition and says, Therefore, and at the tail end of Romans chapter 11, I believe some of the most magnificent verses in all of Scripture says this, in Romans 11:33 to 36, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became his counselor, or who first has or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. His ways are beyond man's discovering. His mind is beyond man's knowing. His wisdom is beyond man's counseling. And he owes no man anything. And this is a doxology to all that Paul has written as it relates to God's sovereign call on the nation of Israel and to the Gentiles that he has chosen for himself. Paul would summarize this by saying, All things come from him and by means of him and are for him and for his glory. To him be the glory, to him alone be the glory, forever and ever. And the church should say, Amen. We would agree with that. So this is 
the transition that we find here. And so as we look at Romans 12, 1 and 2, here are the two very simple verses that we'll look at today. We'll look at the remaining part of this passage in the next couple of Sundays. Here's what he writes. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. You know, within the church there is this phrase that says, well, pastor, you're preaching to the choir, right? The assumption is you're preaching to us what we already know and what we're already doing. And what I want to say to you this morning is that I need to hear this preached just as much as you do. I am an imperfect work of God being transformed, being conformed, not there yet, hope to be there further along the road down my life. And that is true of each and every one of us, whether we recognize it or not. And so in these verses of Scripture that we're going to look at today, we're going to see, first and foremost, the motive for our worship. Now remember that worship isn't necessarily the songs that we sing. It isn't the readings that are in our hymnals that we might recite in the course of a worship service. It's very, very different from that. So the motive for worship is what we're going to look at first. And so very first part of verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brethren. Paul urges the brethren. Now that word urge means to exhort or to admonish or to encourage. Now get ready. When Paul says, I urge you, He's clapping his hands to capture your attention so that you will say, "Uh uh-oh, this is really, really important. I better listen very, very closely. If your child or if your grandchild is about to run out into a busy street, you are going to urge them to stop and turn around because they're potentially going to get hurt if they continue across the street. So Paul wants to capture the attention of his audience. And that word urge is the Greek word parakaleo. And it is the same word that we would derive paraclete, which Jesus used to describe the work of the Holy Spirit who would be given to us. In John 14, 16, Jesus said, I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper, paraclete, that he may be with you forever. So Paul isn't just trying to capture the attention of the hearer. Paul is saying, I want to come alongside of you, and I want to encourage you, and I want to help you in this process of having a proper motivation for your worship of the Lord. Paul speaks under the full authority as an apostle. He's not just some random guy who's saying something that sounds good when there's a group of people gathered together. The full weight of apostleship through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul says, I urge you, brethren. Now, when he's speaking to brethren, he's not speaking to fellow Jews. He's not speaking to Roman citizens. He's speaking to his spiritual family in Christ. If you are a born again believer in Jesus Christ, claim to be washed by the blood of the Lamb, dependent upon Him for your salvation, then you and I need to listen to this very carefully because this is for us 
And we are expected to hear not just with our physical ears, but to hear with the heart of our being and respond in however the Holy Spirit prompts us to respond. So Paul urges us to listen and to act on the basis of God's mercies. All that Paul is going to say is rooted in the mercy of God. Verse 1 continues, I urge you, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, because of God's mercy, in light of God's mercies, in view of God's mercy. We understand what mercy means, don't we? Mercy is the undeserved love of God. It is His unmerited favor. It is God giving to us what we don't deserve, His grace, the washing away of our sin through Christ on the cross. But let's take a look at a few verses that will illustrate for us, articulate to us, exactly what this mercy of God looks like for us today. Colossians 1, 13 and 14. For He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Romans 5, 10. For if while we were yet, excuse me, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of a Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Ephesians 2:19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. And Romans 6:17 and 18. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed and having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. All of this is a result of the grace And the mercy of God. Not because there was a need to fill a pew in a church. Not because heaven was a little bit low. Not because of some unforeseen merit in you or potential in your life. Simply because the sovereign God of this world desired to show us mercy and grace and called us to be His children and did for us what we could not do for ourselves. In view of these mercies... Paul is urging us to listen to what it is he has to say. By the mercy of God, we received peace with God. We received the promises of God. We have been enveloped into the purposes of God. We have His abiding presence. And believe it or not, church, we actually possess the power of God through the the Spirit who indwells us to be freed from the power of sin that so easily entangles us in this life that we live. The motive for worship is based upon what God has done for us. He has showed us an abundance of mercy. Our lives are showered under the grace and the mercy of God. And so what should the mercy of God motivate us to do? Very simply this, to worship Him. But what does it mean to worship? Paul's going to tell us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what it means to worship God. So Roman numeral 2, the method of worship that we're going to look at. There's three key components to the method of worship. The first one is this, present your body. Verse 1 continues, Brethren, excuse me, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies. 
Now, make no mistake about this. When Paul says to present your body, he's talking about all of you. All of me. Not part, not some, not most, not just my hand, not just my foot, not just my wallet. God wants all of us. The word that he uses here, to present, is the Greek word parastemi, and it's a term used to describe a priest placing an offering on the altar. And you make no mistake about it, when a priest placed an offering on the altar, all of it was placed upon the altar. Not just some, but exactly what God had prescribed. The means of surrendering or yielding up is what Paul is talking about here. He's telling us to give to God what already belongs to Him. Think about that. Paul is urging us, by the mercies of God, to worship Him by, first of all, giving to God what He already owns. Letter A, we belong to Him by virtue of being His creation. All of us owe our existence to the hand of God. Not mom and dad, not grandma and granddad, but God. God is the author of life. Now, some people will wrongly say that we are all God's children. That's not true. Jesus would say, but to as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become the children of God, right? But because we are a part of His creation... We already belong to Him because of that reality. Romans 11.36 For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things, the physical world that we see around us, to Him be the glory forever. Amen. Letter B. We belong to Him by virtue of our redemption. Now, if you claim to be a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, you not only belong to Him because of creation, but because of redemption. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Your physical body is a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body. What is the price that we have been bought with? What is the price that was paid for our redemption? It is the life of Jesus Christ on the cross. Letter C, we belong to him by virtue of our own declaration. I've said this before, I don't remember if I've ever said it here, but when we come to Christ, we in a sense sign a blank contract. We don't understand all that God is going to call us to do. We don't understand all that God is going to allow to come into our lives. But we make a declaration of faith to follow Him as Lord and Savior. And so we make this declaration. Here's a part of the declaration that we make that we may not be aware of at the time we make it. And we find this in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me 
and gave himself up for me. Now you might say, well, wait a minute. I never made that declaration. Well, you can't have it both ways. He's either Lord and Savior or He's neither. He isn't going to be your Savior so you can live a life indifferent towards Him, to pursue your own plans and purposes, to live a life of sin, to live a life that is about self-pleasure and self-pursuits. When you come to Christ, you come to give all of yourself, to follow Him with all of your life. And this is the declaration that we make as the born-again believers in Jesus Christ, that we have been crucified with Him in the life that we now live. We live by faith and the Son of God. So we have declared to live a life for Him. We have declared that He owns us by virtue of what we have said in agreeing to follow Him as both Lord and Savior. But you know, in our rebellion... We resist giving to Him what already belongs to Him. Now, when you were parenting, or when you've been watching your grandchildren, and one of them has a toy that's been shared, and they don't want to give it back, what do you say to that child? Well, it doesn't belong to you. Give that back to your brother or your sister. They are the rightful owner, right? Isn't that what we say? Well, this is what's true, is that we belong to God, yet we resist in giving to Him what already belongs to Him. We'll look at this in just a moment. So how do we present our whole self to Him? Verse 1 continues to tell us, as a living sacrifice. The verse specifically says, a living and a holy sacrifice. Now, the people that Paul was writing to we're well acquainted with the sacrificial system. Now, we're aware of the big seasonal feasts. We're, we're aware of the Day of Atonement and the Feast of Tabernacles and the Feast of the Passover. We're aware of those things. There are many, many feasts, many, many sacrifices that are prescribed for the Jewish people as a part of their worship. But there was a daily sacrifice for the sin of the people. So when Paul says that we are to give ourselves as a living sacrifice. You've got to know that in the mind of his audience, they are seeing a dead animal on the altar and saying, wait a minute, I'm to put myself on the altar as a living sacrifice. Paul describes a sacrifice as holy. And what he means by that is a total commitment It is a commitment where this individual is set apart completely for the Lord. That's in root what holy means. It means to be set apart. So what's the difficulty of a dead sacrifice? Well, there's none, right? It's there. It has no life. It can't do anything. What's the difficulty of a living sacrifice? Well, a living sacrifice is going to consistently try to climb off the altar. This is our resistance to his ownership of us. This is our rebellion towards what is rightfully his. 
In contrast to a dead sacrifice, we are to offer to the Lord a living sacrifice. All that we are, all that we hope for, all that we have, all that we desire to be in Him is what we are to give to Him. Now this struggle that you and I have is not new to us, it's not unique to us. The prophet Isaiah would write of the nation of Israel, the Lord says, these people come near to me, excuse me, the Lord saying through the prophet Isaiah, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. You see, worship of God is not measured in what we say, nor by what we sing, but in how we give ourselves over to Him in complete sacrifice. Now, let me ask you, how many of you enjoy making a sacrifice? Anybody? Nobody? Our human nature resists sacrifice. The part of our being that is not fully transformed rebels against sacrifice. Yet the Word would tell us that the purest form of sacrifice is giving our whole self to the Lord. The sacrifice that we offer to God should be, number three, acceptable to God. That's how verse 1 concludes. Acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. That word acceptable means well-pleased. It means that God should be well-pleased with the sacrifice that we are offering to Him. We are not to ask ourselves if we are satisfied with our sacrifice to Him. We are to ask God if He is satisfied with our sacrifice to Him. Now, God does not ask more from us than we are able to give in the moment. But God is going to ask us what He is capable of allowing us to do. Let me give you an example. You can't expect your six-month-old to stand up and walk, can you? They're just not ready to do that. So in our spiritual being, God is not going to ask us for think, to do things that we have not yet been equipped by Him to do. But what God is going to ask us to do is to sacrifice that which we are prepared to do by Him as a sign of our love for Him, our worship of Him. But this sacrifice that we are to offer is not a one-time deal. It is an ongoing life pursuit to give to God what is already His, our whole self. The kind of sacrifice that is acceptable to God is when we give our very best to Him. As we look at the mercy of God, as we think about the hopelessness we have apart from Him, what sacrifice is God truly deserving of? You see, when we come to terms with that, when I come to terms with with what that means... That is worship that's going to change my life. It's going to change the direction of our life. It's going to change the priorities of our life. It's going to change what we determine to mean a successful life.
I think it's far too common within the church today that we treat the grace and the mercy of God so flippantly that it's just terminology that we throw out. Oh, yeah, yeah, grace of God. But what does that really, really mean for us? You see, we have to wrestle with that truth to understand what Paul means when he says, in view of God's mercy, present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice which is acceptable to God. Paul says that this is your spiritual service of worship. I believe the NIV says that this is your reasonable spiritual worship or reasonable service. You see, we have to learn to stop living for ourselves, to stop straddling the fence between being fully committed and choose to be totally committed to living for Christ. We need to continually do that all throughout the day. We've got to get off the fence and we have to make a declaration that we are going to be the people of God that God has called us to be as we view His mercy and His grace. Not so we can feel good about ourselves. Not so we can make a spiritual checklist. Not so we can fill a vacancy in a church ministry. But because God is worthy of that and we are compelled to give to Him an acceptable sacrifice of worship. So we're to worship on the basis of God's mercy. We do that by becoming a living sacrifice. So how can this become true of you and I today more so than it was yesterday? Well, we look at Roman numeral 3, and that is the means to worship. The means to this kind of worship is, number one, resist conformity. The beginning part of verse 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world. You know, in our culture today, especially if you're in school, if you're not wearing the trendy clothes, you're considered an outcast. If you don't get one of those really fancy collars that really don't have any collar for your tie, then then you're you're unfashionable. If you don't have the right the right shoes, you don't drive the right car, you don't vacation in the right place, then you're considered to be out of touch. So there's this constant pressure in this world to conform to this world. And we have to remember that the presence of sin all around us is powerful. It is pervasive. It is impossible to escape the presence of sin. Yet we have the power to overcome sin. And as a part of that power, we are to resist the conformity of the world. So rather than using the word urge, as Paul did earlier, here he's giving a very specific command, and it carries a greater force than this parakaleo coming alongside. The verb is a combination in the passive tense. This is technical, but it, it's important to understand this. And so when we look at this forceful command that Paul gives, then in the Greek that is in the passive tense, here's what it means. It means that being conformed is something that we allow to happen rather than something that we do intentionally. You know what that means? That means that you and I don't have the capacity in ourselves, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, to resist the conformity of the world. The ability to resist conformity is the outworking of the Holy Spirit as He's making us who He wants us to be. I 
You don't resist conformity by just attending church. You don't resist conformity by giving a cursory reading of God's Word. You don't resist conformity by throwing, throwing up a few common prayers. You resist conformity by allowing God to mold and shape you into who and what He wants you to be. That won't happen apart from a sacrifice and commitment to Him. You know, being out of shape, not being physically fit, is something that happens to us passively. Isn't that right? How do you go from being fit to not being fit? Well, you just don't do anything. You just sit. And guess what? Pretty soon, atrophy sets in. Pretty soon, walking up the steps takes your breath away and your heart's beating like it's about to pop out of your chest. Right? Being fit is something that you choose to do intentionally. Being unfit is something that happens naturally. It is a passive reality in our life. And that's the way it is with this not being conformed. We can't unconform ourselves. We give ourselves to the Lord and He is the one that enables us to be not conformed to the world that is around us. We're born into this world. There's a world system that operates all around us. We're surrounded by it. We're shaped and influenced by it. We are deceived and often damaged by it. It is what we naturally know and it describes our life before we came to Christ. We look in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of the world according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working, and the sons of disobedience. That's the world system that we're born into. The world system that influences and shapes and dominates our life prior to Christ. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And when we come to Christ... We are set free from that world domination. We have been given the indwelling of the Holy Spirit so that we have the power and capacity and desire to be changed by the Father. We have been passively shaped by this world system. We must actively resist this by giving ourselves sacrificially to the Lord and in doing that, we will passively be changed from what the world would like to squeeze us into being. So we resist conformity by giving ourselves to the Lord and allowing Him to do His work to us. Number two, we pursue transformation. Verse 2 goes on to say, Do not be conformed by this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That word transformed is the English word metamorphosis. It is that blossoming that takes place. There's no greater example of the little caterpillar that is prickly and sometimes slimy and unsettling to the eyes. Certainly not something you want to step on when you're walking out of your steps in the bare feet, right? It's kind of squishy. But that thing spins a cocoon and in a few weeks out comes this incredibly beautiful butterfly. That is the metamorphosis that takes place in the life of a believer who has given his life to Christ sacrificially, who's pursuing transformation. 
transformation of that caterpillar happens from the inside out. And that's what happens to us spiritually. It doesn't happen automatically. We have to give ourselves over to it. Now this is technical. That verb be transformed is a present passive imperative. I'm not a Greek scholar. That's just what they say. Here's what it means. It means that we are to keep on. That's the present. The passive means that we cannot transform ourselves but we continue to keep on pursuing it as we give ourselves to the Father. The transformation happens externally as we give ourselves to the imperative, which is the command. And all that means that we are to keep on being transformed. We must be changed. You were made new spiritually when you came to Christ at salvation. But you came as a spiritual baby. We all came with a need to grow into maturity. That only happens when we intentionally give ourselves to Him for the work that only He can do. We're saved spiritually, but mentally, emotionally, we are not saved. Notice how this change comes about. This transformation. It comes, as we continue to look in verse 2, by the renewing of your mind. So how is our mind renewed? How is our mind transformed? Well, we need to understand that the mind is the control center for our thoughts and our attitudes and our actions. When we are hurt or offended by others, our thoughts often dictate the attitudes and the actions that we're going to have. So you can actually lump our feelings are also controlled by our mind. So the mind is still corrupted by sin after salvation. Our mind must be transformed. It must change. Unbiblical thoughts will lead to unbiblical actions. Unbiblical attitudes will lead to unbiblical actions. Unbiblical feelings will lead to unbiblical actions. When somebody hurts you or offends you, somebody says something negative about you, you begin to think about that, you dwell on that, you have an attitude about that person, and it isn't long that you begin to say, I'll show them, I'll get them back, I'll share a rumor about them, I'll tell a dirty secret about them. Isn't that right? What we think and what we feel unchecked is going to lead to unbiblical actions. So as we think about the transforming of our minds in order to allow us to be made new, we look at some verses of Scripture. Colossians 3.2 Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. 2 Corinthians 10.5 We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Philippians 4.8, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Our minds need to be changed and infused with the truth of God's Word. Psalm 119.11, your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin 
against you. Colossians 3.16 Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be equipped, excuse me, adequate, equipped for every good word. You see? The passive work of God takes place in our lives as our minds are transformed by the truth of God's word. And the end result or the byproduct is that we will become conformed to the image of Christ, reflecting him more clearly to the world around us. We must resist conformity and pursue transformation so that we can, number three, live out God's will. Verse 2 concludes, So that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. That word prove means to test. When we give ourselves to God to worship Him in view of the mercy of God, sacrificially as Paul has described, we will be proving and testing God's will. That word is used of removing impurities by means of fire. Have you ever seen them smelt gold? Have you ever, ever been in a... Uh, gosh, I always forget this. what they call this foundry thank you very much you go to a foundry <clears throat> and you watch them dump in all of this all of this different metal all these different irons and all these different things that have come from comes from the earth and you see flashes of lava like substance you see the smoke you can smell it's so unpleasant and the end result as all of the scrag is scraped away is this end result which is exactly what they wanted it to be. It is iron. It is silver. It is gold that has been purified by fire. Now, I want to clear up what is a misconception in this verse. The words here, good and acceptable and perfect, are not adjectives that describe God's will. They are nouns. They are nouns that tell us something about God's will. The sentence is structured to say that God's will is what is good for every believer. God's will is what is acceptable to God. God's will is perfect for every believer. We don't think of them as descriptive of the will of God, but as a thing that is true in the life of a believer as he lives a life of sacrifice to the Lord. As a Christian is transformed in his mind and is made more like Christ, he comes to approve and desire God's will, not his own will, for his life. It is in this that he discovers that God's will is what is good for him and that it pleases God and is complete in every way. It is all that he needs but only by being renewed spiritually can we ever truly discover and do and enjoy God's will for us. The motive for worship is God's mercy. The method of worship is a living sacrifice. The means 
to worship is being transformed through the Word of God. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that as we think about the truth of Your Word, that You would strip away every false pretense, that You would strip away all self-righteousness, that you would expose all resistance and rebellion to giving to you what already belongs to you, and that you would grow within each of us a discontentment with the status quo of modern Christianity. Father, we all sit in the same boat, an incomplete work of your grace, But I pray that we would all share the same desire and commitment to not be satisfied with where we are in our walk with you and in our service to you. But that as we reflect on your mercy, we would be compelled to give to you more of ourselves. You desire our whole heart. And I pray that you would give to us an honesty to evaluate what we withhold from you I pray that you would give to us a spirit of repentance over that. I pray that you would encourage us with your open arms of love and mercy and grace to accept us, to encourage us, to empower us, to live a life that is different. I pray that we would never give up, we would never stop walking towards the light of your grace. And Father, I pray that along the way we would be blessed to see the fruit of what a life sacrificed to you means in this world around us. For that we would give to you all the praise and all the glory and all the honor, knowing we can do nothing apart from you. We pray that you would have your will and have your way in every heart and every life. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing.